Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we are doing our top 10 movies of 2021. Um, As usual, our lists come in a little bit later than other people's because we like to completely finish the year and also cram in lots of uh, new releases (laughs) into like the final two weeks. So the way this works is we both have our own private secret top 10 lists, which we will go down in ascending order from 10 to 1 and discover along with you what we have picked as the finest films of the year. (laughs) Um, So shall I go first with my number 10 or do you want to go first? Sure, go for it. Okay, all right. Well, this is a very easy one. My number 10 is The Matrix Resurrections, which we discussed last week. (laughs) So I can refer you to last week's episode. I enjoyed this film tremendously. It was very flawed, which is the case for many Wachowski projects. But the more I think about it, the more juicy and interesting it is to me. I feel like it was very refreshing and had something to say about the Hollywood landscape and sequels and that sort of thing, which is on our minds a great deal at the moment. My other blockbuster contender for just the list in general would obviously have been Dune. And in the end, I decided to disqualify it because I found its racist elements too discomforting, even though it's artistically very impressive. So Matrix Resurrections it is on number 10. I also had a great time watching that movie. It doesn't come close to my top 10, but that's only because this was a great year for movies. It's a fantastic year. There's also a lot of movies I personally have not had access to because they've not come out in the UK yet. So I think Morgan's list will include some, which sadly, I have not even had a chance to see. Yes. And I loved Dune and it's my number 11. And in terms of like experiences I had watching movies this year, it's probably number two. But we've talked about Dune so much and everyone has talked about Dune so much that I didn't think there was really any point in like further advocating for Dune, which we're doing anyway. So by talking about it right now, my number 10 is Parallel Mothers by Pedro Almodovar, which we talked about briefly on our New York and London Film Festival episodes because I had seen it at the New York Film Festival. I just totally love this movie and I think it is both really pleasurable as a sort of piece of melodrama, as I said when we were talking about it then, and also really potent as like a political statement, which I don't think is something that Almodovar is particularly known for, though I am not an expert in his filmography at all. And part of the reason why I was so taken with this was that I'm not someone who's an Almodovar head. Like I was not someone who was eagerly anticipating this movie. And I just went in kind of mildly curious about it and it really blew me away. I think that Penelope Cruz gives one of, if not the best performances of the year as the lead character. I think she is completely astonishing. I've always liked her. I think she's great in pretty much everything, but she is so beyond good in this movie in a way that was really, really thrilling to me to watch. And yeah, I just think that everyone should check this out when they have a chance to see it. So I wanted to talk about it more here. Um, I'm really excited for you to watch it. Yeah. So my number nine is a low-budget indie horror film called Sator, which is written, directed, produced, funded, and with cinematography and music by Jordan Graham. (laughs) As you can probably tell from that credits list, it is both an interesting film and has an interesting backstory. He spent six years making this movie, 
He literally built the set like in his garden. It co-stars his grandmother. And he funded it partly by borrowing money from his friends and being a wedding videographer, which is doubly intriguing when you watch the film itself. A movie I can only describe as viscerally disturbing. I I kind of started crying with fear during this movie. (laughs) The concept is it's about this man whose family is clearly very strange. Um, He is living alone in this shack in the woods. And we get kind of flashbacks of his grandmother who clearly has dementia and was obsessed with this kind of demonic entity known as Sator. There's a lot of kind of recognizable horror movie trope stuff happening here because like it's a weird guy in the wilderness and like he's looking for a demon and there's lots of kind of spooky jump scare stuff going on. But it's incredibly well-crafted and quite experimental and strange. And it also uses darkness really well because it's obviously like a huge cliche for the vast majority of horror movies are filmed in the dark. And also there's a lot of complaints about just mainstream blockbusters being too visually dark and you not being able to see what was going on. And with this movie, I was like, wow, he really knows how to film, which is doubly impressive when you know it's someone who's like basically at least partially self-taught and is working on a shoestring budget in a forest somewhere. He just made the location feel so oppressive and discombobulating. It's like this, I guess, like a redwood forest or something somewhere in America. So there's like these enormous trees and this sense of kind of damp and closeness. I just thought it was a fantastic movie. Definitely one you can watch by yourself. It's not like a let's hang out and scream together kind of film. It's very quiet and subdued. But yeah, Sater by Jordan Graham, highly recommended. All right. So my number nine is the Mexican film Prayers for the Stolen, which was directed by Tatiana Huizo. And this is Mexico's submission for the international feature film category at the Oscars. And it made the like Bake Off shortlist and is currently available to stream on Netflix, I assume everywhere in the world. So if you want to watch this, you probably can. And despite the fact that this is like in contention for an Oscar and available for everyone to see, and that everyone I know who's watched it thinks it is incredible, this movie may as well not exist. I literally only knew this existed because Guillermo del Toro tweeted about it a few months ago, and I only knew it came out on Netflix now when you just told me. (laughs) Yeah. So basically this is uh, a film told from the perspective of this group of young girls, one particular, um, there's part of the movies when they're really like kids, and then a bit later when they're teenagers. Um, In this town in Mexico, it's based on a novel, and there's clearly some sort of like gang or cartel problems going on although because it's all from their point of view and their moms are kind of trying to shield them from it it's not explicitly clear and their mothers are desperately trying to keep them away from these men to avoid them being raped and kidnapped so pretty near the beginning of the film like all their hair gets cut off so that they look like little boys and then even when they're teenagers their mothers are still trying to keep them kind of like unsexualized so that they're safe from this. The main girl's father is, I believe it's implied that he's like off in America somewhere and is theoretically supposed to be sending them money and that's not really happening. And so you have this dynamic throughout the film where there's this young girl who's clearly really smart and like wants to be learning, but like the educational facilities are really like not there because of the situation in the town. And then this dynamic where like the audience has 
more of a sense of what's going on than the characters do, but we also don't fully grasp what's happening. And the whole plot of the film, or like the whole structure of the film is designed to get us to sort of grasp why people would eventually be motivated to go on these incredibly dangerous journeys to attempt to get into America, which is also obviously such an unbelievably precarious and dangerous undertaking, right? And it's definitely an explicit political project in that way without ever being particularly didactic in its actual text. Like the scenes themselves, it's not like anyone's making political arguments, but the whole of the film is obviously trying to get people to understand that like this is what's going on. And as someone who lives in America and like obviously thinks that all of this stuff at the border is totally horrific... I found this incredibly moving and illuminating because even as someone who is totally politically sympathetic to people who are trying to get into the country and like reads the news, etc., I didn't fully like grasp the like emotional context of what it would be like to be one of these people because how could you, right? Like that's it's impossible. And the fact that this piece of art can kind of bridge that gap for people, I think is totally astounding without again, trying to be like, we're trying to reach white people in America. Like, it feels really like it has integrity while also obviously attempting to tell the story of these people for audiences who don't have that context or information. Seems like Netflix ought to be promoting this more. (laughs) Yeah, I completely fucking agree. I was like, everyone in America should watch this movie, right? And like, they're not talking about it at all. And just like, all the actors are great. The kids are really wonderful. Like, they feel real without being like, you know, overly mannered, right? Like, I just was completely blown away by it. I I watched it at home, obviously, and barely paused it. Like, I I just completely had my attention. So I strongly, strongly recommend this. So that's Prayers for the Stolen. I hope it gets nominated for an Oscar, because then maybe people would (laughs) be aware that it exists. But now you all do. So, yes, (laughs) you know. So my number eight is I'm Your Man by the German director Maria Schrader. It's a sci-fi romantic comedy and it stars Maren Eggert, who is a German actress who I think is better known for television, and the British actor Dan Stevens, who is either bilingual or trilingual, and he plays a robot who has been designed to be the perfect boyfriend for the protagonist, who is a single woman who's just like really career-oriented and not particularly interested in romance. And I realize that description sounds like a very conventional sort of rom-com, but this is definitely in the somewhat dark, dryly amusing indie drama, mature side of the rom-com genre. Not to like diss fun, silly rom-coms, which I also love, but that's the tone they're going for. And um, I picked this partly because like, it's just a really entertaining, interesting movie that like doesn't go overboard with its sort of psychological experiment stuff about AI in the way that a lot of AI movies are just like, this is cornball, please stop being trying to be philosophical. It's just like a really good drama, but also partly just because Dan Stevens is so fucking good. <laughs> and I don't want to discount the fact that obviously this film has a female protagonist and Maren Eggert is also really good, but she's kind of playing the straight man to a weird robot performance. And it is a top tier weird robot performance. Just Dan Stevens trying to embody the idea of like a heterosexual love interest for an academic woman in her 40s, you know? And he's like so charming, but also like so inhuman and weird and not threatening in the way that like a lot of 
people in that role would be, which is interesting because like Dan Stevens is kind of a threatening looking person and can play really disturbing characters. I just love him as an actor and I think he picks really interesting roles in a way that um, the vast majority of his peers are not doing. So yeah, I'm Your Man, directed by Maria Schrader. Great movie. I loved that movie. It is not on my list, or again, close to making the list because this year was so good for movies, but I had such a good time watching that movie. I kind of wanted the screenplay to get deeper into the situation, but I thought that he was incredible. As you say, the like embodiment of that's like slightly offness but also in a robot character who's supposed to be really appealing is really fascinating. Like, I can't think of... I mean, it's just really interesting characterization, I've you know? Seen. Yeah. Well, and also, usually, of course, in movies like that, it's always a woman. Yeah. Not only is it almost always a woman, but also the focus is very existential. And I think the focus here is far more just on the idea of it being a relationship drama starring two extremely different people who are like forced together in a weird circumstance, which is always the best premise for a rom-com. Well, right. And there's, as you say, there's nothing threatening about him. And even though he's weird, he actually is basically just like, great. And she kind of just can't cope. She's kind of bitter, but she's also like, what the fuck am I meant to do with this? Because like, she's not like a horrible person. She's like quite a good person. But she's also just like, what do you do when you're presented with the perfect man who legally has to live for a science experiment in your house for six weeks? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. that And as a connoisseur of the rom-com, I was so refreshed by that movie because the genre has been so abysmal lately. So um, yeah, highly recommended. My number eight could now be more different spiritually. <laughs> it is Red Rocket by Sean Baker. Great movie. Which stars Simon Rex as the worst man in He's the world. Truly the, he is the perhaps the worst man of 2021 cinema. I'm sure there's other bad men, but like, God, he's terrible. <laughs> oh, hard to be yeah. this guy. So the plot of this movie, for those unfamiliar, is that Simon Rex, who has had sort of many ups and downs of his career, but spent time working as an adult film star, is playing a character in this movie who is a sort of like down on his luck guy who had a career that was like very successful as an adult film star. And that clearly is no longer the case, but he hasn't (laughs) accepted that he's a has-been. Like he's still talking like he's this like big shot guy. And one of the interesting things about the movie that it's not something I've ever thought about because why on earth would I? Is that like, he's obviously not famous in any mainstream context, but like anytime he talks to a man and is like, Google me, they're like, holy shit. And then he gains this kind of like (laughs) cachet, right? But that's not useful to him in any way. Like he needs to just get a normal job and he can't because if you Google him, (laughs) like all this stuff comes up, right? But he's also just like a complete inveterate, awful narcissist. So he shows up in sort of the middle of nowhere in Texas where his technically still wife, although they obviously haven't been involved in a long time, and her mother are living in not very great circumstances and sort of weasels his way into living with them and winds up selling drugs. So he's making some money and it seems like it's sort of returning. They're sort of in a stable situation, but then he gets his eye on this teenage girl who works at a donut store and begins grooming her. And it is disgusting. Like it is so (laughs) awful. And 
I mean, I think the movie's incredible. Sean Baker, for people who don't know, also directed The Florida Project, which I loved, and Tangerine several years ago, which was also great. I he, think this He kind the- of specializes in movies that are at least somewhat about sex work and also are very yes. rooted in reality while also being funny. Yeah. So he'll, like, move to the place where he's going to shoot these movies. He really spends a lot of time with the communities that he's making films about. He's incredible at casting, obviously, and he tends to cast people that sort of overlap with the characters in some way, like Simon Rex does here. And I think what's so amazing about this movie is, like, I I, I think Simon Rex should win an Oscar for this. Like, I think yeah. he's absolutely I mean, astounding. the backstory of this is also amazing, because, like, like you said, Sean Baker's famous for casting. He often casts people who are non-professional actors. In this case, it's a guy who has done a lot of shitty comedy. Like he had like a rap career. His rap name was Dirt Nasty. Just ridiculous <laughs> man. But like he called up Simon Rex and was like, can you send me an audition tape like on your iPhone in like half an hour for this role I've made up that I think you're correct for? And three days later, Simon Rex was driving himself across the country because it was like mid-COVID and that was the safest way to do it, to just go and make this film. And he was like, yeah, I felt like I really understood the character because I've lived in Hollywood for 20 years working with the trashiest people alive. I've met a lot of narcissists. I know how to do this character. And it's like, yeah, I imagine you do. (laughs) Yeah, and it's clear. I mean, he's also like a director where obviously it's scripted but there's clearly a lot of improvisation going on and like Rex in particular is obviously improvising things I think the teenage girl is played by a professional actor but I think pretty much everybody else in the movie is just people he found in Texas I mean the wife is a the wife is a New York stage actress oh interesting okay she's like done a lot of theater but like she's not like particularly pretty by Hollywood standards which I think is why she's never worked in TV and movies and like immediately after this movie she got like a big agent which is what happens when you star in a Sean Baker film I love that. That makes me really yeah, happy because she's fantastic. She's, she's, she's really great. good also. And he just never stops talking. Like he just talks and talks and talks and talks. And right at the beginning of the movie, he shows up at these people's house and like he literally just, they're just exhausted by him immediately, right? Because they give in because he just doesn't shut the fuck up. And I just started laughing hysterically because I was like, oh my God, this, I mean, he's awful, but it's, it's fun to watch, yeah. right? But the movie never pretends that he is anything other than a monster. Like, the stuff with the teenage girl is absolutely despicable. It's excruciating. And it somehow manages to be both things at once, right? Like, I know that there are people who just found this really uncomfortable to watch because the guy's awful, but I think more people, and I certainly am one of them, found it totally pleasurable without being compromised by the pleasure like you leave the movie and you're like wow that was a great movie but also like ugh, right like that was disgusting and I don't know how he kind of does both things but somehow it all works and it feels like such a perfect like Trump era piece of art in that way Uh, yeah I was just like amazed give give Simon Rex an Oscar nom he's just great please please yeah So my number seven is Mothering Sunday, which is a British indie historical drama by the French director Eva Husson. The trailer for this, if you look it up or any posters, make it look like the ultimate conventional Downton Abbey film of which we have like two or three a year in Britain, like clockwork. And in some ways it kind of is. It's set in that sort of general framework. It's set shortly after World War I. The protagonist is played by Odessa Young. And she's a maid who works for this family where the patriarch is Colin Firth, of course, playing to type, um, (laughs) who is married unhappily to Olivia Coleman, also playing to type. 
and they lost uh, their sons in World War One. So it's like this community of like rural, very rich people and their servants where the entire community has been devastated by losing almost all of the men. And this maid character has been having a long-standing secret love affair, not particularly romantic, like a sex affair, a sex pals affair um, with the local like one surviving son of the aristocrats who is played by the marvellous Josh O'Connor, who I know that Morgan loves a great deal. And, you know, it's a fairly conventional setup, but just like the way the story is told, I found just far more introspective and smart and well-characterized than I'm used to seeing from this kind of movie. It's also like not steeped in patriotic nostalgia in the way that I think happens more with obviously British filmmakers working in the same genre. I think it's a bit different that um, it's a French filmmaker. This movie also includes Sophie Jurisu, who is a great up and coming British Nigerian actor who was in his house last year. Great actor. Um, he's in the film in sort of flash forwards where you see that he eventually becomes the main character's lover like in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's quite hard to articulate why I like this film, but I just thought it was very well constructed. After I watched the movie and I looked it up, I realized there was a great deal of quite annoying discourse about the fact that the protagonist is naked for a lot of the film. And it's like, oh, is it like feminist for her to be naked for so long? And I'm like, I truly hadn't thought about this. I just thought it was pretty cool that she was naked for a lot of the film. (laughs) It's like a good piece of characterization because it shows that, you know, she has this like sense of self-assuredness and freedom within a restrictive environment in like a completely non-sexualized sense. And also it's like the extremely rare, if not unique example of a historical drama where the woman just has like normal leg hair and stuff, which I have a bugbear about. And also has really great mid 20th century style string music soundtrack composed by Morgan Kibbe. So yeah, I like this. If you're into historical dramas, I found this really satisfying and emotionally compelling. I think it got kind of mixed reviews, but personally, I was very into it. Well, you've sold me. I don't believe that's here out here yet, or else I would have seen it, because as you correctly said, I love Josh O'Connor, as well as those other actors, obviously great cast yeah. across the board. But um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. So I will see it and report back. My number seven is Inside by Bo Burnham, which is a movie. I don't care what anyone says. It's a film. It's an hour and a half of filmed entertainment. And I really wanted to include it on my list because I felt like, I mean, this is kind of why I was tempted to include Dune and then decided not to because, again, Dune has received and will receive many accolades. In terms of, like, experiences I had watching movies this year, this was one of the most memorable and I think probably will not leave my mind for a really long time. I'm not particularly in the mood for art about the pandemic now and probably won't be for a long time like the idea of reading a novel about the pandemic I just like the I just no no I don't want it and I think tv shows and movies are in a weird position because clearly this is going to go on for a long time and it's strange for everyone to pretend like filmed entertainment is taking place in this like alternate reality where nothing is happening at the same time like when you see like suddenly people wearing masks at the end of movies for instance which happens in more than one major art house film of this year it like really threw me out of the film because i was just like i don't want to be thinking about this like get it away from me and i felt like this was the one example of a piece of art that like not that it reflected my exact state of mind when i saw it but somehow captured the like crazy making feeling of like being trapped in my apartment for 
over a year in a way that was both like expressing a like deep existential despair, but also really thrilling and creative. And the combination of those two things made it exciting to me to watch as opposed to just like, I fucking hate this. And like, I I just want it to be away from me, right? So I mean, I'm sure that basically everyone who's listening to this is familiar with this, but essentially what it is, it's like an hour and a half. And Bo Burnham shot the whole thing inside of the guest house in his house where he lives with Lorraine Scafaria. And he like he shot it all himself. He edited it himself. And it's essentially a musical. Like it's just songs that he wrote about being stuck in his house and about the internet and about getting older and just like the nightmare of America right now. And I don't think it all totally works, but I think the stuff that does is like really electric and thrilling, both in a like funny satirical way. Like the stuff he writes about the internet is really on point in a way that only someone who like us has grown up on the internet could really sort of get to. And there's also a lot of like real depression and despair in it that feels quite profound. And it's just good. Like he's just a very, very brilliant person. And I was just thrilled watching it in a way that felt like, oh, someone kind of got it, like what we were all going through, but in a way that was like way more smart and like talented than I could have articulated myself. So yeah, I wanted to include that on my list this year because it felt representative of my year in culture in like a big, a big way. And he's given zero interviews about it, which I think is incredible. Good for you. Don't say a thing. I really respect that. It's like, no, don't explain yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I never watched this, which means that my only experience of Bo Burnham in 2021 was his role in Promising Young Women, which was appalling, as we discussed on the podcast. But he personally was probably the best part of the movie. So well done, Bo. Yeah. Yeah. So my number six is our first overlap of the episode, Red Rocket, which we've already discussed. Yep. So back over to you. <laughs> Yes, I will keep talking. So my number six is a little bit of a throwback. I felt I couldn't decide whether to include this because it was nominated for an Oscar last year. We had this weird situation at the Oscars where like movies from the first couple months were eligible. And then like the international film was always a weird category. Um, But this is an international film. It's Quo Vadis Ida, directed by Yasmila Zibanich. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. And this is not a movie that got like a ton of attention. So I feel like highlighting again is fine. I saw it, you know, 10 months ago. So I don't remember all the details. But this movie really floored me. It didn't win the International Film Oscar, obviously. But um, if you didn't see it, I really recommend it highly. The plot is basically that the main character, Ida, is a um, UN translator, and she's at the center of the Srebrenica massacre, essentially, if the massacre hasn't happened yet. She's, like, running back and forth between all these people and, then, like, her, trying to get her family out at a certain point. And it is very kind of docudrama-esque, but it so brilliantly captures the sort of, like, chaos on the ground of that situation and also the like bureaucratic stupidity of the UN specifically, but like basically everybody involved. And I'm not someone who knew a ton about that. And you don't really have to, to watch the movie though. I'm sure 
that if you did, it, there would be layers that I didn't pick up on. And the main actress, whose name is Yasna Juricic, is absolutely incredible. I cannot describe how good this woman is. She's just like a middle-aged woman with like a normal face, like, which is so refreshing to see. It's really stayed with me for like almost a year. Obviously not an easy watch. I remember sort of putting it off until like just before the Oscars last year, but I think it's really worth watching if you have the stomach for it. So yeah, that's Quobatis Ida, and that's on Hulu in the US if you want to check it out. Yeah, like you, I did kind of a lot of swithering on uh, <laughs> what films count as 2021 releases. In the end, I decided that um, First Cow was legally last year's film because you discussed it on last year's Best Of podcast. I did see that this year. <laughs> and like, if it was legally a 2021 film, I would have picked it because I fucking love yeah. First Cow. Just for the record, great movie. Um, <laughs> but my number five of this year is uh, Drive My Car by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. If you follow film critics, you probably heard people buzzing about how great this movie is. It is really fantastic for a lot of reasons, which we're about to discuss. But also, I feel like I spend a lot of time complaining, as many other people do, about like how fucking overlong a lot of American mainstream movies are, like specifically blockbusters. And the problem isn't that they're long. The problem is that the stuff they're doing with the length is like completely pointless and a waste of time and annoying and bloated. This movie is three hours long and completely makes use of that time and needs to be three hours long to expand the whole story. Like the credits happen 40 minutes in because the first like half hour of the movie is basically the prologue. But the protagonist of this movie is a middle-aged theatre actor and also theatre director who is married to a screenwriter named Otto. And they have this like very creatively fruitful and mature relationship. And she dies in the first act. And then the rest of the film is about this main character, the actor slash director, getting picked up for a residency in Hiroshima, where he is going to direct Chekhov's play Uncle Vanya. And you meet various characters who are members of this theatre company. Like you see him auditioning people for this play, which is clearly kind of quite an experimental adaptation where he's auditioning an international cast of people who are like speaking different languages and stuff. But his most important person, his most important relationship is with this young woman who is hired to be his driver, like to drive him from his rental accommodation to the theatre and back every day. And it's just like loads of kind of, straightforward, realistic drama conversations about life and relationships and grief and work and creativity. It's very naturalistic. And it's just like really interesting and engrossing. It's a very kind of novelistic sort of film. Well, this is my number one. So you scooped me by putting (laughs) it in number five. I think this is the best film of the year. I don't know if it's my favorite, although it's certainly close. I mean, my top five, you could kind of throw them up in the air and however they came down, it would all be, (laughs) it would all be fine. But this is one of the ones that we managed to get on a screener, like very last minute. And I'm so glad that we got to see it because I think it is as good as everybody was saying. I mean, this was like the Critics Darling movie this year. It won both the LA and the New York Film Critics Awards, which is really unusual. And I was just totally mesmerized by it. I mean, as you say, it was three hours long and my attention span has really been shot by by the pandemic. And like, I did pause it to like go to the bathroom, but I basically was just wrapped watching it the whole time. And 
I basically just think every element of it is like perfectly executed. The writing, as you said, is really novelistic. And I think part of that actually is that on the one hand, it feels very realistic. It's just about people doing stuff and like having conversations. But there's also a slightly heightened element to it. Like, there will be scenes where characters will have these really long monologues that are way longer than anyone would have in normal life. But because the movie's about theater, especially, it just sort of feels right for them to be happening. And it's directed so perfectly that it you don't mind. And the direction isn't flashy at all, but I think every single shot choice is made so intentionally that it guides you through the movie so that like your attention is just totally captured. And all the actors are amazing. IMDb doesn't have pictures with a lot of them, so I and I can't remember their names. So like I can't mention a lot of the um specific supporting characters, but Hidetoshi Nishijima plays the lead, and he is so good. It is unreal. He's most of the time in the movie, he's playing someone whose emotions are pretty held in, and he's really riveting throughout. I mean, he has an incredible face. He has an incredible face. There's like he's sort of big lines around his mouth. And these, like, big eyes and a big nose. And, like, it just, he just conveys so much. And he's someone who's not really in touch with his feelings. So the fact that he's not really expressing them makes sense. And he has a big scene at the end where he and the driver, um, again, whose name I don't have off the top of my head, are sort of sharing these really big emotional things about their past. And he sort of breaks down. And it's so affecting because you've been watching three hours of this guy kind of not do this, right? Like he's been keeping it all in and he finally lets go. And I was reading a really interesting interview with Hamaguchi, the director, and I think the LA Times, where he was saying like, actually, this movie's a little bit unrealistic because Japanese people don't really express their feelings this way. And like, they would kind of not talk about it and keep it in. But like, it's a movie. So (laughs) you have to kind of have that moment. But it feels so completely earned because the movie has built up to this point so much. And there's another secondary character who is the um, wife of one of the other people who's working at the theater festival who auditions for the play, who is mute. And so she speaks in Korean sign language. Part of one of the things about the, this play, like his method as a actor and director, is that everyone speaks their native language and then there are like subtitles that are shown like above the actors, which I just thought was like a great thing too. It's one of those movies where parts of it almost feel like a documentary. It's not filmed in fake documentary style, but because it's such a hyper-specific and unusual location with these extremely detailed characters who feel both idiosyncratic and like completely normal people. Cause it's like, yeah, you've got these like quite eccentric people who are all actors and working in theater, but they're not like super weird and quirky. Like you can see them like at the grocery store and stuff. But yeah, like there's so much thought put into what you would think of as the world building if it wasn't set in the real world. Yeah. (laughs) No, like every single thing has been thought through so carefully. And so this wife of this guy at the festival winds up being cast in the play and her name, the actor's name is Park Yu Rim. And so she's speaking in sign language and I found this actress and this character completely mesmerizing. And she's the sort of person where, like, if awards were just, she would be getting nominated for Best Supporting Actor. But, like, she's not famous, so it's not happening. And all of the supporting cast were great. But 
the movie is about these like really deep emotional and like spiritual and a non-religious sense things. And she just has this quality that's like so profound. I mean, she's really like warm. Yes. Like she connects to the other actors in a real way. She really connects to this director who's really cut off from other people. And like, it's not romantic or sexual at all. It's just that she can really, again, like see other people, which is kind of what the whole movie is about, right? How we can and can't really know what's going on with other people and connect to them. And the sort of like people being able to be two things at once. And again, that unresolvability of like humanity and grief is what the movie's all about. And I just found it so profound. Again, I the whole time I was riveted and then that big scene at the end, I was like, oh, this is what the movie's really saying. And I was so moved by it. I, I thought it was incredible. It's so worth the three hours. <laughs> like, I know that's long, but like, do it. It's, yeah, Watch I it mean, it's just can. fantastic. I think also you can probably just like take a break. You can go have dinner halfway through. You could watch half one day and half another day, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was watching this at home on a screener and it was during, well, I was like staying with my parents for Christmas and like occasionally my mom or someone would come into the room and be like, Jesus Christ, you're still watching. Like, and it'd be like two people sitting in like a beige room or in a car and just like having a subtitled (laughs) conversation about existence. And I'm like, yes, it's great. (laughs) It's fantastic. There's two and a half hours left. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's the perfect length. Actually, there's like one minute at the end that I would have cut, but that's fine. (laughs) But I would, I mean, in the abstract, I would happily have watched like six hours of this movie, right? Like it it just, it did not feel overlong to me at all. And this director released two critically acclaimed feature films this year. So yeah, he also released Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is um, an anthology of three movies that is definitely not as good as Drive My Car, but it's totally worth seeing as well. And he described it kind of as like a practice run for this. Like there are a couple scenes, long scenes of people inside a car talking, and he was kind of working out like how to do the shooting of that. And he was one of the credited screenwriters on Wife of a Spy, which was directed by his mentor, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, which I absolutely loved, takes place in Japan during World War II and has to do with espionage and kind of like democracy in the West and all of this stuff, which I also highly recommend. So he has had quite a year, like really successful period for Hamaguchi. Um, I'm fascinated by this director having been mentored by one of Japan's iconic horror filmmakers because that's what Kiyoshi Kurosawa usually does. (laughs) Yeah, he's taken a turn toward drama in the past several years, because the film I saw of his a few years ago at the film festival was absolutely not that. And when I looked him up, I was like, interesting. <laughs> like, that's not what that was. But yeah, Wife of a Spy is my number 12, just outside, outside the top. So good. But anyway, my number five is Power of the Dog by Jane Campion, of course, which we talked about in our film festival episode. I still have to watch this a second time. I've only seen it the once, but I just think this is such... A marvelous movie. As I said, my top five, you could pretty much like shuffle them up and they're all pretty much tied for me. Jane Campion is one of my favorite directors and this is her first movie in like 12 years. So I am just like grateful that it exists. And I read the book that the movie is based on and the book is also really great if anyone's interested in that. But I think this is a really smart adaptation of the book. It's not that she changes a ton of stuff. She just kind of focuses on the right things and reframes the plot in a way that I think is super smart. And I've seen some people talking about this movie's relationship to like 60s Westerns and like 60s kind of thriller type movies in a way that I think is really insightful. 
it definitely feels throwbacky to me to that era of like sexuality crisis film in America. But if it had actually been made at that time, it would have been banned. <laughs> grim, yes. And so she's both working in a slightly archaic register, like not in a bad way, but while showing explicit stuff that wouldn't have been possible at the time. And also doing some really fun stuff with famous actors. Yeah, someone compared it to Far From Heaven, and I was like, that is such an interesting comparison. And I think that's a really apt comparison. Like, it's not as... Like, I mean, Todd, we did an episode on that relatively recently, and it's not to the degree of, like, literally lighting the movie exactly the same as Cirque did in that movie. But I think she's doing a lot of stuff that's deliberately playing on this particular type of sort of 60s-ish movie. Without being a pastiche. It feels, like, visually, aesthetically very modern, set in the 1920s, but, like, genre-wise, that's what it's drawing from. Right. And this sort of, like, crisis of sexuality and masculinity feels very much of both the 20s and the 60s simultaneously. But then again, she can kind of pull the curtain back and reveal like exactly what's going on. I just think this movie is so, so smart. And it's done really, really well on Netflix, which I think is fascinating because it's definitely an art film. But I think that speaks to these, this genre references, right? Because it's also kind of a pulpy thriller. It just happens to be I mean, an art film too. I mean, it stars Benedict Cumberbatch. Like it stars, you know, yeah. <laughs> other famous people, but like it stars Benedict Cumberbatch, which is a big draw and it's kind of unexpected because he's not someone you think would be in a Western. People who know indie cinema know Jane Campion. Like it got a lot of publicity as well. Like I can see why it was a hit. Yeah, the only reason this isn't on my list is because, as we mentioned in the film festival podcast, I saw this with people who really hated it. And that colored my view of the movie because I was watching the film being like, this is great. And then afterwards, I just felt really uncertain about my opinion. So it kind of, I need to watch this a second time to like solidify all my thoughts on it. But I do think it was really great and effective and compelling. But I can't put it on my list for that weird reason. (laughs) You got to watch it again in the temple of your own mind. And, you know. This really illustrates um, like how unexpectedly swayed I am by peer pressure. I think it's one that's going to really reward rewatching. Yeah. Most of her movies are. Um, and I think it's going to really stand up. And I think it's going to clean the fuck up at the Oscars, which is pleasing to think about. I mean, because... they're, they're clearly putting everyone out on the publicity tour already now. And Jane Campion yeah. gives a good interview. So great. She, she does. Um, I saw her do a talk in person once. And that woman is completely charming without feeling like she's pandering to anyone because if she doesn't give a shit she will just say that and that's also thrilling so yeah I just I just love her there are a few public public figures that I genuinely am just like I just admire you so much and she's one of them so yeah so my number four is Pig written and directed by Michael Sarnowski he is a first-time filmmaker he's done some editing work and he is done some direction on television, but it's a really impressive directorial debut, I think, for a feature film. Famously, this stars Nick Cage, who, as we all know, has a varied and volatile resume. In this movie, he plays a reclusive truffle forager who lives in a shack in the forest. Yes, it's my second forest shack man film of the list. (laughs) And his best friend is his foraging pig. And... The trailer for this is very John Wick adjacent because the important moment of the first act of the film is that someone steals his pig, 
meaning that Nick Cage must emerge from the woodlands to retrieve the said pig. And his sidekick in this operation is a fantastically well-observed character played by Alex Wolf, who's playing this kind of glitzy, image-obsessed, Portland, Oregon wheeler dealer with a flashy car who knows Nick Cage because like, he's part of the Portland food scene and sources his truffles from Nick. So Nick is this sort of like adjacent figure in this world of pretentious food snobs in Portland, which is a delightful setting for a movie that combines thriller elements with straightforward drama. And there's some ways in which kind of Nick Cage's character is quite typical of this sort of film. Like he's this restrained figure who's clearly grieving and is like extremely macho in a not aggressive or violent way. But it like differs from the more traditional John Wick type stuff in that like it's not about him kind of going off on a killing spree and stuff. It's about him being forced to re-enter society. And you do really see his perspective on this, right? Because like it turns out that he is like a former foodie. Like I don't want to spoil the movie too much, but like obviously as someone who is like obsessed with truffles, he's like someone who knows a great deal about food and cooking. And one of the main themes of the story is like, as he re-emerges into the civilization of Portland, there's this contrast between his extremely genuine love of food and cooking and the manufactured sense of authenticity you get from people who are like in the high-end food world. There's this fantastic scene in a restaurant, which everyone who's seen the movie loves. I won't spoil it, but it's just like a really entertaining to watch, but like emotionally well-observed, unusual film with like a great star we all find Nick Cage very watchable and he's like utilized in a very fun way in this like he's he's reining it back a lot of people are kind of describing it as one of his best dramatic performances in years which is true but also of course that's his fault for intentionally choosing a lot of chaotic work which we must also respect and of course there's like loads of fantastic just food filming in this great depictions of food and eating and cooking, which is a personal love of mine. So this is really a movie that's like playing into my interests. <laughs> yeah, I finally caught this a month ago, maybe. And I didn't like it as much as you because it's like, as you say, designed yes. for you specifically. <laughs> there were a couple things that didn't quite work for me, but I really, really liked it. And I thought that Cage, obviously, was just like, great. But I also thought Alex Wolf was amazing. Yes. No one was talking about him because, which I totally get, because of course the big story is like, oh my God, Nick Cage actually was in like a serious film and was like giving a real performance. But I just thought Alex Wolf was so unbelievably persuasive as that exact kind yeah. of like insecure millennial braggart. Yep. Overconfident, but actually insecure rich kid. I was like, oh, I know this guy. Mm. And I looked, I can never remember which one of them is which. And I was like, is this the one who was in Hereditary? And he was. And it was, you would never imagine that that was the same person. And obviously, like, super exciting that that's that guy's first movie. Yeah. And there will be more, obviously, so. Yeah, just, like, really interestingly offbeat without being intentionally weird and strange, you know? Yeah. Just really sincere. Yes. So my number four, which I'm sure is on your list as well is The Souvenir Part 2, which we talked about on our film festival episode. I just love this movie. I think it's perfect. I have no notes. Um, I'm not even sure what to even say about it. It's not that I'm I mean, like for ruminating those, For those who movie. did not listen to our, uh, <laughs> to our film festival episode. You could just listen to that. Yeah, I mean, it's directed by Joanna Hogg. It's a sequel to The Souvenir Part 1, which came out a couple of years ago. And it's a 
extremely biographical drama about this young woman who is now recovering in the aftermath of a very complicated and toxic relationship with an older man. And uh, she comes from a very upper class family. So there's a lot of stuff going on about the British class system. But this film is especially about kind of creative identity and her finding her path as a filmmaker. And it's just like gorgeously directed and acted and written and a wonderful, perfect movie. It's my number two. So (laughs) yeah. When I saw it, I was like, well, that's obviously going to be the best movie of the year. And then the fact that it wasn't is a serious testament (laughs) to the year for me. The cinematography is so great. It's so witty. Loved like it it's so, so it's like a really serious much. film for grown-ups that also is just like it's just like oh just little like the humor of human observation is just like pinpointed in there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like just deeply deeply pleasurable in a way that sometimes art house films don't try to be. Like, Quovaris Ida is not in any way attempting to make you feel good, which it shouldn't be. Like, that's not the goal of that movie, right? And, like, that's not a complaint at all. Like, artistic projects have different aims. And one of the things that, like, I definitely felt trying to really catch up to see movies for this list, and, like, I just kind of gave up at a certain point because, like, I was sick and then, like, (laughs) COVID was hitting and I was just like, oh, God. It's like, there's a lot of fucking depressing movies that get awards attention right and like it's grim and a lot of those movies are amazing and like they deserve attention but i think as you say this is a really serious movie about really like serious things chief among them like a young woman trying to be an artist which to me a creative person was like really moving and profound but it also wants you to enjoy it and just aesthetically is so gorgeous. Yeah. You feel like you can touch it, you yeah. know? I mean, the costumes alone are unutterably gorgeous. As I said, it's extremely autobiographical. The lead actress is Honor Swinton Byrne, who is Tilda Swinton's daughter. And Tilda Swinton plays her mother in the film. And she was a friend of Joanna Hogg's youth. Like they knew each other, you know, back in the 80s, perhaps 70s. Like they went to posh boarding school together. And they also share this love of fashion. So like there's all these clothes that the main characters wearing in this film, which are 80s in a way that doesn't appear in contemporary 80s pop culture throwbacks because all those throwbacks are inaccurate. And also this is like a portrait of a very specific person, which is like someone who is living in like an artistic community is quite eccentric and also is very posh and is English. So it just gives this character like a real sense of identity without it feeling like Hollywood glamour in a way that I really appreciated. Yeah, totally. And Richard Ayoade should be nominated for Oh Oscar, God, he's so fucking funny. On previous podcast. He's in this movie for like five <laughs> minutes and he's in the first one too. Like, honestly, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, Souvenir Part 2 sounds great. Watch the first one first. You have to watch both movies. It is a two-part yes. narrative. <laughs> yeah, you will be like, what the fuck is going on? But yeah, I just, oh, amazing movie. But let's let's keep going. Yeah. Okay, so we are on number three now, which for me is Petite Maman by Celine Sciamma. A delightful 72-minute long film. You may recall Celine from Portrait of a Lady on Fire in 2019. She has also made several other movies, always about young women and girls. And this film is about two little girls. It's just delightful and like really emotional and lovely and fun and childlike while also being really thoughtful. The main character is this little girl who's like, I guess, eight or nine years old. Her grandmother's just passed away. So her parents take her to her grandfather's house to like empty out all of the stuff. And while this process is kind of taking place, 
the little girl goes to play in the forest by herself every day. And she meets up with another little girl. And this isn't like a sci-fi movie that has like a time portal or whatever, but this other little girl is her mother at the same age. So she has a chance to like see what her mother's life was like at this same age 20 years ago or whatever. And it's just about their friendship and them kind of having days together and playing and also like having very kind of serious emotions. Like it's a movie about like them kind of examining their relationships with their parents and stuff, but from a nine-year-old's perspective and it's really cute and the camera feels like it should be at the level of a nine-year-old, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I can't wait to see this. I missed the festival screening and then it... (laughs) To qualify for awards or like to be technically a 21, 2021 movie, it screened for one week at a Brooklyn movie theater <laughs> out by like JFK airport. And I was like, I refuse to engage with this tomfoolery. So I have not seen this movie yet, but um, obviously can't wait. Yeah. I mean, it, it really felt extremely like an adaptation of a well-written 20th century children's novel, you know? Because it has this real child's perspective while also obviously being written and directed by a mature adult who has all the kind of like surrounding understanding of the way like the parents' emotions are working and, you know, the adult systems are at play, even though the kids like don't need to understand that because the kids are just like playing together for most of the movie. And these two children are just really funny. They're a pair of sisters, possibly twins, which I really should have realized while watching the movie because like they look identical. Um, but Josephine <laughs> Josephine and Gabrielle Sands are fantastic in this film. There's just loads of fun little scenes with them hanging out together and like incompetently making food in their mother's kitchens and that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this movie is absolutely delightful and is, as I said, only 72 minutes long. So on the opposite end of the drive-by-car yeah. spectrum, if you want to experience both ends of 2021 cinema. So my number three is The Card Counter, directed by Paul Schrader. Which I missed. I think maybe this came out like during a COVID spike or something, because I remember it being in theatres yeah. and then not being able to go. So this, I think, was pretty divisive. I think the reviews were overall like, quite positive. And then, like, you know, I look at the little letterbox stars, the people I follow, it was definitely kind of all over the place. But I caught this on basically the last day it was playing in New York City because I really wanted to see it on a big screen. And it was like me and one other person in like the, you know, Midtown AMC, very weird experience to be watching a movie about uh, America's torture program, which for those unfamiliar is the subject of this film. Oscar Isaac plays someone who was one of the sort of lower down people involved in the torture program at Abu Ghraib, who went to prison afterwards and then having gotten out, you know, way before this movie takes place, he's now a sort of professional gambler, not at like a very high level. He kind of makes money, however many hundred dollars, and then we'll kind of move on to the next place. And um, it just completely like clicked with my brain in a way I can't really articulate rationally. I just loved it so much. I think it's just a great piece of art, but also the fact that this great serious film was engaging with this part of America's recent history in a very direct way. I mean, that's what the movie's about, right? It's like the moral consequences of this and like, how do you live with having been this person? It was so refreshing to me because no one wants to talk about this fucking stuff. And if they do, it's in a like 24, 24 light <laughs> yes. type of way, right? <laughs> And Paul Schrader, who 
wrote Taxi Driver, worked with Scorsese on a bunch of stuff back in the day, and more recently did First Reform. And on a personal level, chaotic. This man has posting sickness. (laughs) His Facebook, I mean, God bless him. I feel like every other thing he writes, not that I'm like checking up on it, but I'll see things occasionally. I'm just like, I never want to have a conversation with you. But like, also just (laughs) never stop. Like, I just love that this is out there. The worst, most controversial opinions, unusually paired with like, a continuing interesting creative output. <laughs> so I saw First Reformed at MoMA and he and Ethan Hawke were there and he just, I don't remember him saying anything particularly outrageous, but he's clearly just cantankerous and sort of can't be stopped. And Ethan Hawke was at his most diplomatic and like, let me just sort of manage this conversation. But like First Reformed, which you will not watch because of the climate change stuff Ends on a kind of ambiguous, like ambiguous note, and someone asked him to like explain the ending, and let me tell you, <laughs> he was not countenancing that. So he's just a wild card. This movie also had like literally one day of production left when COVID hit. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I think it was one day, and shut down. And he was like, "Well, why can't I just finish?" And they were all like, "Paul, you need like you gotta stop. Like <laughs> we can't." Um, so just wild on multiple fronts, but the movie is, I think, astounding. And yeah, um, I really want to see this partly just because Oscar Isaac, but like, it sounds fascinating. So the last thing I was going to say was, I think give Simon Rex an Oscar, but it's also criminal that Oscar Isaac has not been talked about for, I mean, people clearly just don't want to deal with this movie, but I think this is Oscar Isaac's best performance since Inside Lewin Davis. He is so unbelievably good in this movie it is sick he's one of the best actors alive it's astonishing and i don't think the movie really works if he's not as good as he is because you you like him and the movie's not trying to be like this is an awful man it's very sympathetic to him and just like trying to figure out like accountability for this stuff and also this film does show some pretty upsetting stuff from like recreations of the abu Ghraib stuff but most of it is in casinos and there's a kind of thriller element. So it's not as, it's not as like brutal a watch as it might sound from the way I'm describing it. Like I found it very entertaining, although also obviously very heavy. So yeah, I really highly recommend that one, especially because it did not get a lot of attention. So uh, so my number two is Souvenir Part 2. So back to you. Yes. So my number two, as people probably have figured out if they were paying attention, uh, is Licorice Pizza, of course, the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I mean, this is probably like my favorite thing I saw this year. Certainly the best film viewing experience I had. I am so glad I got to see this in a movie theater before our current. Yeah, it just came out in the UK and I am not going to movie theaters right now. So yeah, I saw this in a packed house on like the third day it was out or something. And the just like ecstatic laughter of all of these New York film buffs watching this movie (laughs) revived my soul. I think this is such a joyous and beautiful film without being a particularly like, I don't know, a lot of the writing about it, and there's been some really good and sharper writing about it more recently, I think, but especially when it was first being reviewed, they were kind of like, it's a lark. Like, it's just this like shaggy romp through the valley in the 70s. And it is very loose and it it's kind of like a romance in the medieval sense. Like it's episodic. Like you go through these various sort of projects that these guys are working on because the character played by Cooper Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, is this 15-year-old 
who has all these kind of like business entrepreneurial like schemes and so they'll kind of move from one thing to the next. But I think it's all incredibly deliberately structured. Like I don't think there's anything particularly extraneous in the movie. And the structure is essentially that at all of these various things that they're doing, like all of the adult men everywhere are just like cartoonish, horrible monsters. They are so (laughs) bad. So bad. Like the tone of the movie is not such that you're watching and you're like sickened, right? Because it wants you to be having a good time. But she's really the main character of the film. And part of what's so interesting about the relationship is that she's kind of like intrigued by this teenage boy while also being like, oh, he's a teenager. Like, why am I spending time with this teenager? But every time she then is like, I'm going to spend time with an adult man, they wind up being horrible, (laughs) like truly horrible. So it's clear that like part of what's appealing to her about this kid is that he's not really like that. But then he starts to kind of behave in like sleazy ways that she is clearly like, oh God, like, no, he's turning into one of them. So I think it's all like really carefully structured in a way that is obviously like doing something intentional as opposed to just being like, it's fun, but also it's really fun. Like it's just so pleasurable in a way that something like there will be blood, which I think is better than this is not right. Like that's not a fun movie. This manages to have something to say while also just being, like, an incredibly good time. I laughed so much watching this film. I think both the young stars are absolutely charming. Alana Haim is really, really, really good. Cooper Hoffman has a little bit less to do, but he's also great. And obviously watching him, just, like, if you were very attached to Philip Seymour Hoffman as I was, it's just, like, emotional to watch him. And then all the sort of more famous secondary people are just like delightful when they sort of come in for a scene or two. Like Bradley Cooper is (laughs) so funny in this movie. Like I cannot describe. And obviously there's been all this controversy about the romance, whatever. But I think the movie handles that in such an intelligent way. And obviously there is something transgressive about it. But like the movie so completely knows what it's doing and also it's uh fake so it's actually fine all good i just can't wait to see it again i loved it so so much and i'm just really happy that paul thomas anderson is like alive and making i I love paul thomas anderson like when i saw the trailer for this i was like i don't get it like i don't it doesn't appeal to me like this type of like i don't know but i love him and every person i know who's seen this movie has been raving about it so i'm happy to go watch it when i have access to it (laughs) Well, I think there are some interesting comparisons to be made to Phantom Thread. The fact that he's now making movies about women is super fascinating to me because that did not used to be his MO at all. Like, I mean, I've in this case, so making a movie for his pal. Because like, famously, he is like a yeah. high super fan. And then yeah. wrote this movie and was like, would you like to act in it? And she was like, I've never acted in a film. And he was like, no, no, you're gonna. <laughs> yeah. But like, I've been to so many screenings of his movies, like repertory and current in New York and like there were there, the line at the men's room after this movie was so long and there was no line for the women's room and I was like how is this still happening like this is not <laughs> women like come on but his movies used to be really about these like crises of masculinity and now he's kind of going in from the other side which I think is really fascinating but the way to think about this movie I think is that it's basically the master except about like <laughs> a teenage boy 
<laughs> and a girl who's 25 because they can't be together, right? So there's just this like yearning, but it can't consummate, right? So it just sort of is like this, which of course is exactly what the master is, except with these like tormented middle-aged men. But like the dynamic is exactly the same. Like he's so good at this kind of like, it cannot be, but, but, but this is like unresolved longing is one of his main things. Once I figured that out, that he was just doing the same thing again, I was like, that's very funny because these movies really couldn't be more different in every other respect. So yeah, I can't wait for you to see it so we can talk about it. It's so great. And I hope <laughs> they've like limited the release in the US because of COVID and I, which is correct, but it's it's a real bummer. I mean, everything sucks. Like we, <laughs> it is what it is, but I, I can't wait for everyone to get to see it because I think it's well, just I will, such I will a pleasure. Think of it in my mind as Robert Altman's The Master and going going that yeah, way. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. All right. Well, I know what your number one is, so <laughs> you've, take you've, us away. you've guessed it. Okay. Yeah. My number one is Titan by Julia Ducourneau. Was that your guess? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the thing about these lists is like often a lot of it is governed by which films are the most memorable. Obviously, we both keep detailed lists of every single movie we watch all year, but you know, some films really stick in your mind and God knows, <laughs> Titan stuck in my mind. We did discuss this a bit in our festival podcast, but this incredible body horror movie is, as I said, by the French director, Julia Ducourneau. We did an episode about her previous film, Raw, which is also very good, but definitely not as interesting as this. It stars Agatha Roussel in her feature film debut. This is a woman in her early 30s who has had like a career as a model and journalist and stuff before now. She plays a character who, as a child, was in a car accident that led to a serious skull injury. And after that, she is sexually obsessed with cars and vehicles. She has a titanium plate in her head as well. And I... Don't want to go much further into this. Like when I watched this film, the only thing I knew about the movie was the most famous element, which is that she has sex with a car. And this happens in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. So like after that happened, I was like, holy shit, where are we going to go after this? And the answer is a deeply chaotic series of events. But it's very extreme. There's a lot of like very theatrical, gory, unpleasant violence in like the first third. And then it kind of goes in some very different directions this movie's very interested in gender and it's very difficult to market as well. Like it was marketed as like, oh, here's this like really shocking movie, which it is. But to me, it doesn't feel like a, a movie that's doing stuff for shock value. Like it's doing shocking stuff for interesting reasons and it has a real sense of humor. Like there was a lot of laughter in the cinema when I saw it. There were also more walkouts than I remember seeing in any other film in my life, which I understand because there's a lot of like murders. <laughs> But it's also like very queer in a way that like isn't discussed in most mainstream discussions about like contemporary queer cinema because there's a lot of conversations about like representation and movies that are about a recognizable kind of dynamic of queer love stories or communities or identity or coming out and that sort of thing, which like ranges from like really dumb stuff like is there going to be a gay character in a Disney movie to, you know, serious acclaimed indie dramas. But kind of part of the appeal of this movie, in addition to the fact that it's extremely entertaining and extreme and weird, is that it's very hard to pigeonhole. Like, even the gender of the main character is extremely ambiguous. And it's like the opposite of any kind of attempt at positive representation. Because this character is like a huge freak. Like, this person would never exist in real life also, because it's like, it's purely fictional, like, very id-driven 
And also someone who has sex with a car. And then there's a sort of a sci-fi like magical element. And there's an incredible secondary role by the French actor Vincent Lindon, who is an older actor, an actor in his 60s, who put on a lot of muscle for this movie, kind of continuing the themes of body extremity. And he has a fascinating relationship with the protagonist, which once again, I will not spoil. But this is a juicy one. It really stuck in my memory. I, at the time I was like, I'm never rewatching this. The experience was too extreme. And now I'm kind of like, maybe in a year or so, I will rewatch this extremely entertaining and fascinating, weird movie. Like if I can find someone else to watch it with me, great, horny, unpleasant, torturous, funny, great music, weird outfits, strange haircuts. What more do you want? (laughs) Well, my friend who worked on this movie said that watching it the first time, she had to watch it many times, obviously, and then watching it the first time was by far the most unpleasant. But then once you know what's coming, that like, she got really into watching it then multiple times thereafter. This was 13 on my list, I think. I also thought this was just great. I think the best thing about it by far is Vincent Lendon. And the whole thing's great. Like, I'm not denigrating anything else or anyone else in it, but I think he is just like on another level, like in space. I mean, he plays like a firefighter, the patriarch of this group of firefighters where all the other firefighters are like 22-year-old muscular hotties. (laughs) Like the, the dynamics, the group dynamics at play with all of these men, it's beyond... It's wild. It's such a good performance of someone who really doesn't have any self-awareness. But then there are moments where you think maybe he actually does have insight, but like then they got, it like goes away so fast. You're kind of in the dark about what's going on. Well, in I felt like head. it was almost like he has insight and then he intentionally pushes yeah, it away. Yeah. He's like, I'd prefer not to go yeah. there, which at one point is like very explicit. Correct. But despite the fact that there's so much, like he doesn't, want to think about the amount of emotion that he conveys is so extreme like there's so much just pouring off of this guy even though it's not coherent in his own mind right it's he's just a live wire i mean that's kind of part of what's so interesting about this as a horror movie it's a very non-traditional kind of body horror movie but the protagonist is extremely reactive which is normal for a horror movie but the difference is she's not like screaming and running away from stuff type reactive, which is the typical thing. She's the perpetrator of everything. And because she is a psychopath, she's not expressing normal emotional reactions to most stuff. And he is, but also he is a very weird person. So so he is the one who has like the more traditional dramatic role. Yeah, I think that's right. He and Juliette Binoche are also going to be in Claire Denis' next movie, which is coming out next year. Oh my God. Which like, give it to me. Oh, that's so good. I loved it when she was playing, like, a horny space witch. The only thing I know about it is that I've seen a still of both of them, and they appear to be in normal clothes in an apartment in Paris. <laughs> so we're, get, we're in more, like, terrestrial zone. It was really a rarity for Claire Denis to make a movie that was set on a spaceship and had, like, a dildo monster. The rest of her movies are, you know, set on planet Earth and are about emotions. But that's like a nice gateway drug for a person like me who can then go back through her filmography and, you know, watch her observe the human spirit, which, of course, she is excellent at. <laughs> I think this is this was also like, what can I shoot during COVID? Oh, yeah. You can put Juliette Binoche in an apartment and Juliette Binoche will be incredibly yeah. watchable in that apartment. <laughs> yeah. So that's a little preview for next mm. year. But yeah, those are our top 10 lists because my number one, as we already mentioned, 
just drive my car. I do want to briefly mention a couple documentaries that I thought were great, because last year I had three docs on my top 10, I think, because like distribution, it was a great year for documentaries, but also distribution was slowed down. The two that I saw that I really loved were Procession, which is on Netflix. Again, I think like anywhere in the world you can watch this, which is about a group of Catholic church abuse survivors, men in their 60s maybe, who get together and do like art therapy, basically. Like they're making short films with the documentary crew and also the documentary crew is documenting the process of them doing this. And I just thought it was beautiful. Like it was really, really humane. And that obviously sounds really dark and there is some upsetting stuff, but mostly it made me feel good because it's about these people like helping each other and healing and they're all really open about the process. I was really impressed by it. It really moved me. And then Todd Haynes's Velvet Underground documentary, which I watched recently. I love the Velvet Underground, although I'm not like a, you know, mega fan who knows all of the like specifics about the rarities or whatever. And it's such an unbelievably creative and well-directed It's a really unusual like, documentary, as we would expect from Todd. Yeah, it's there's all of this montage in an incredibly clever way like he said he basically was trying to use the techniques of experimental film that was happening in new yeah. york in the 60s because there's like they had like tons and tons and tons of footage to work with because like usually for this type yeah. of movie it's just like talking heads and concert footage but with someone who was hanging out with tons of experimental filmmakers uh loads of material to work with and there's basically no concert footage of the velvet underground so he had to get creative and i saw that a couple weeks ago so it's pretty fresh in my mind anyway but something about it just really has stuck with me i think the way that all of them talk about each other and obviously Lou Reed is dead. So he's this kind of like presence hanging over it. I found it really, really emotionally affecting. Obviously I do like the band. So I was going in with some pre-existing ideas, but I'm not like, I hadn't listened to a Velvet Underground record in years. It's not like I was a again, mega fan, but I loved that. So those are two docs that I would, would recommend. Did you see any good documentaries this year? I mean, I saw some documentaries but like nothing that really like nothing springs to mind liked. like I saw, I also saw the Velvet Underground one but I was just like I kind of finished it I was like well I really love Todd Haynes and I don't care about the Velvet Underground <laughs> I mean the film that very closely almost got onto my list there were a few I was very close to putting Fast and Furious 9 on this list and I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't justify it but like that is one of the films I enjoyed most this year for sure is Fast and Furious 9 which I watched with all my friends on my birthday and it was so fucking entertaining. Yeah. Well, the one on my top 15 I haven't mentioned that I'll just mention really briefly is Come On, Come On, the Mike Mills movie with Joaquin Phoenix, which I think has some... Sh- I liked it a lot, obviously, hence its presence on here. But um, I think it has some structural problems as a movie. But I think Joaquin Phoenix is astounding in it. And Gabby Hoffman is also great as his sister. And then Woody Norman plays her son, who's... Joaquin Phoenix looks after during the film and he's like nine years old and he's British and he plays an American kid in this movie and like he's clearly just like a freak prodigy talent like it's actually disturbing to me how talented this kid is and it's really really moving so if you want to like cry that's a good option men having feelings you know (laughs) good time but yeah I think that's pretty much it Thank you so much for listening. We love doing these episodes and we really appreciate that people love to listen to them. So if you have seen any of these movies or if you watch any of them on our recommendation, we would love to hear from you. And if you have other favorites this year or stuff to recommend, please let us know too. If you would like to support us, you can do that at patreon.com 
slash overinvested podcast. And if you would like to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, a five-star rating is particularly helpful with visibility, and we would appreciate that a great deal. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.